Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 64 of the Benzo Free Podcast. Welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks and things are pretty good around here. I've been busy with videos for easing anxiety. Those take a little bit of time to put together and working on some other projects and even helping out a few friends. I hope you are holding up okay with the virus stay at home situation with your benzo situation and with anything else that you might be facing, you know, during these more difficult and somewhat bizarre times that we are going through right now. I'm going to keep our intro really short because we have a full show today. Also, I will talk more personally with you during the feature section on isolation. But I do want to say thanks for joining us and thanks to everybody who's been emailing me and commenting on the podcast and commenting on easing anxiety videos lately and providing such wonderful feedback and encouragement and I, I just got to tell you that the outreach has been amazing, and I am very grateful for all that during this time. Thank you. Thank you all so very much. Today, our format will include our introduction, which you just heard, <laughs> as short as it may have been, our spotlight, mailbag, benzo story, and feature, and even close out with our moment of peace. Yes, we have a full slate today. Today's feature is on surviving isolation. It takes an in-depth look at isolation and loneliness with benzo withdrawal, with chronic anxiety, and with this stay-at-home situation from the COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll talk about a few tips and tricks that might help you manage. I hope you like it. And before we do move on, don't forget we need your help. We need feedback of any kind. I truly love to hear from you. You can provide feedback in four ways. Comment directly on one of our podcast or blog posts so others can see. Fill out our feedback form at benzofree.org slash feedback. Email us at podcast at benzofree.org or leave feedback on one of our podcast carriers so others can find us. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And if you want to help support what we do here, you can visit our donations page at benzofree.org slash donate. Trust me, every little bit helps. And don't forget the Benzofree podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. Now, let's move on to our spotlight. In our spotlight section today, we are highlighting a nonprofit organization called BenzoWise Coalition. In my opinion, we can never have enough people, you know, trying to raise awareness of benzodiazepine dependence and withdrawal. And I am so glad to have this new organization as a part of the benzo community. But the truth is, even if the website and official formation of this nonprofit is relatively new, 
Its founder, Patricia Perkins, is not new by any means to the benzo community. I met Patricia through my friend, Dr. Stephen Wright. Patricia was one of the organizers of a mental health summit in Southern California in May of this year. Steve, myself, and a couple other organizers were invited to participate in the event. I was even planning on recording the roundtable discussions for Benzo Free and maybe even host a live podcast event from the conference. Now, I say I was planning because, yes, unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 outbreak, the event was postponed, along with several other speaking events I had lined up this year. I'm not complaining. Well, <laughs> I guess I am just a bit, but I was really looking forward to this one. Partly because it also included another road trip, and many of you know how I love my road trips. Anyway, through the planning phases for this event, I got to know Patricia better and learned about her work and this new organization. I must admit, I was quite impressed. Patricia is a benzo survivor herself, now seven years benzo-free, but still struggling with some residual symptoms. She has spent several years educating herself about benzos and finding ways to help others every way she could. The organization she founded is Benzo Wise Coalition and can be found at benzowise.org. I've added this site to our resources page on Benzo Free and there will be a link in our show notes. They have already teamed up with a few other organizations, including the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices. In fact, fostering alliances with like-minded organizations is one of their primary goals. I'm going to read their mission statement to you so you get a better understanding of their goals and objectives. Their statement reads, quote, To increase public awareness of the dangerous side effects that may accompany as prescribed long-term or improper use of a class of drugs called benzodiazepines, we intend to lead the fight for a world without benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome, eliminating patient suffering and saving lives. Now that sounds like a pretty good goal to me, so I have to admit I'm on board. I had my first look at their new website on Tuesday, and I was quite impressed. Professionally designed throughout, clean, easy to navigate, and full of well-researched information. In fact, I hope to write a blog or two for them in the coming months, and I'm hopeful Patricia will do the same for us at Benzo Free. I also plan to have Patricia on the podcast next month, and I think you'll enjoy what she has to say. Please visit their website and check them out. They are welcoming volunteers and donations if you are so inclined. Thanks, Patricia, for creating this new organization, but most of all, for giving back. Take care. Today we have three items in our mailbag. Our first question is from Denise in Silver City, New Mexico. Denise wrote the following early this month. She said, I truly appreciate what you do to help so many of us during our benzo recoveries. I've been having a rough time lately with migraines and TIAs, so we decided yesterday to hold for a bit. I'm under one milligram of diazepam, 0.08 milligrams, and it seems like every aspect of my body is rebelling. I've been tapering at 10% every 14 days for a month. Before that, I was tapering at 7.5% every 14 days. Hopefully, I can stabilize soon and get going again. I've been gradually feeling my symptoms going from uncomfortable but tolerable to miserable and unbearable. So my panic and anxiety is heightened. 
I'm also having separation anxiety from my husband. Usually, I'm fairly happy to be home with my animals. COVID-19 is a bit of a stressor. I, I have a question and hope you can give me your input. If not, I understand. Is it considered safe for most to jump at 0.05 milligrams of diazepam? Blessings, Denise. Oh, thank you, Denise. I, I like this question because it is one all of us will face at some point in our withdrawal. When do we take that last pill? And finally, become benzo-free. Well, as you all know, I first have to preface this with the fact that I am not a medical professional, and I cannot advise anyone on tapering or any changes in their medication. This is something that needs to be determined by you with your physician. But that being said, at some point, we all get to the point of taking that last pill. Denise is asking about a dosage of 0.05 milligrams of diazepam. She reached this level via a liquid taper plan she found on Benzo Buddies. As most of us know, 0.05 milligrams is a very low dose. That is one twentieth of a milligram of diazepam. They don't get a lot lower. <laughs> but does that mean it is time to jump? When topics such as this come up, I always like to refer to the expert as a foundation. So let's see what Professor Ashton has to say about this in her manual. The professor said, quote, Stopping the last few milligrams is often viewed as particularly difficult. This is mainly due to fear of how you will cope without any drug at all. In fact, the final parting is surprisingly easy. People are usually delighted by the new sense of freedom gained. In any case, the 1 milligram or 0.5 milligram diazepam per day which you are taking at the end of your schedule is having little effect apart from keeping the dependence going. Do not be tempted to spin out the withdrawal to a ridiculously slow rate towards the end, such as 0.25 milligrams each month. Take the plunge when you reach 0.5 milligram daily. Full recovery cannot begin until you have got off your tablets completely. So, uh, according to Ashton, anything below 1 milligram of diazepam is a good time to jump. Since Denise is at 0.05 milligrams, she is well below that number. Now, while I understand what Ashton says about full recovery cannot begin until you are off the meds completely, I do think some healing, in my opinion, has already started. Your body has had to adjust to each reduction in dosage, no matter how small. And each time it has adjusted, some healing has occurred. Sure, you cannot be fully healed until you are benzo-free, but I do believe healing is happening throughout your taper. It, it just makes sense. This is a decision to be made with your doctor, and no one should be rushed in this decision. Denise wrote back to me after I asked her for permission to share her email, which she agreed, and she said she is going to wait a bit before she jumps. She said that she was in a quite intense wave of symptoms, along with a type of grieving process about her taper. She said she was making peace with it, but that she chose for now to delay her last dose. And I have to admit, 
I think our decision comes from a place of wisdom, from a place of education, and even a true understanding of the process she is going through. This comes back to the same principle we've spoken about a hundred times on this podcast. When it comes to benzo withdrawal, everyone is different. Denise knows what her body and mind can handle at this time better than anyone else, and she is managing and adjusting her taper accordingly. And I think she's going to be just fine. Thanks for the question, Denise. Our next item is a comment from someone who I have chosen to keep anonymous. You'll understand why in a minute. Since she wrote this comment publicly on one of our podcast posts, it is one I can share here and one I wanted to address today in the podcast. This person wrote the following. Clonopin is a sedative hypnotic that is also used for the treatment of epilepsy and severe panic disorders. It is usually manufactured and consumed in the form of tablets. Having an idea about how the drug looks like can help to identify if a loved one is abusing clonopin and can also help to prevent potential abuse. Usually, it is available in the form of an orange, blue, and white pill with a large K engraved in the middle. And this person also followed this up with a link to an addiction rehab center of which she appears to be an employee. So, well, <laughs> first of all, and I say this with all due respect, if this woman had listened to our podcast, she might have realized that this was perhaps not the right audience for her message. First off, I must admit, I had a snarky response in mind for this one, but the truth is, that's not really me, nor is it benzo-free. I love all feedback, and I promise to be respectful to each and every person who sends something in. So, here is my more tempered response. <laughs> Obviously, some of the info she shared is a bit basic for most of our audience. I took clonopin for 12 years, so I think I remember what the pills look like. But the main reason I mention her comment here is the part about abuse and rehab. I wrote this person back a very respectful email, inviting her to have a further discussion via email with me and making it clear that most of the people we work with are dependent, not addicted, and have not abused these drugs. Now, I didn't hear a reply directly to that email, but she has posted again since then, and I've had to take some action on that post and remove it. But that's not my point here. Let's go back to the whole thing about rehab. Now, I am not about to say that rehab centers are always a bad idea for benzo withdrawal. There are some that are specifically designed for the unique situation benzos present. And some of those may be effective. I, I don't know. But I do know that most people I have worked with through benzofree who have experienced rehab for benzodiazepines have had a very difficult time of it. And most of them regret the decision. Most rehab centers are focused on drug addiction and not dependence. And the speed of withdrawal, in addition to the type of psychological support focused more on addiction terminology, may not be appropriate for those of us dealing with, as prescribed, dependence. You know, let's hear from Ashton on this one, too. According to the Ashton Manual, quote, It may be possible to enter a hospital or a special center for detoxification. 
Such an approach usually involves a fairly rapid withdrawal, is medically safe, and may provide psychological support. Such centers may be suitable for a small minority of people with difficult psychological problems. However, they often remove the control of withdrawal from the patient, and setbacks on returning home are common, largely because there has been no time to build up alternative living skills. Slow withdrawal in your own environment allows time for physical and psychological adjustments. It permits you to continue with your normal life, to tailor your withdrawal to your own lifestyle, and to build up alternative strategies for living without dependence. Well, thank you, Professor Ashton. You know, I don't think I can add to that. As is often the case, Ashton said it best. I do appreciate this person's comments and the fact that she was willing to actually provide feedback and information. And I hope perhaps she will reply back to my email so we can have further dialogue and conversation. Our final item is from Tracy in Fresno, California. Tracy writes, Just wanted to say thank you for the podcast. Listening to the podcast has been a godsend. So much information. You make me laugh at times and soothe my frame of mind, so to speak. I'm 16 months benzo-free from a cold turkey. And listening to the story aired on March 31st blew my mind. Wow. If Kurt can get through it, I know I can. I don't have the greatest BWS support system. I just have me for now. And I have the podcast. Before you say it, I'm not much for the groups, not my cup of tea. I'm one of those people that hate putting my problems on others. I know you need stories, and I will be sharing my story with you. Not just now. My cognitive is not the best, and the pain I'm experiencing is just ugly. There are no words in a G rating I can use to express myself. Just flat out horrible. I'm so glad you're doing well. I can't wait to hear and see the YouTube channel. Thank you again. Love and peace always. Wow, thank you, Tracy. I, I am so sorry that things are so rough right now for you. Cold turkey can complicate this whole experience so much, as you well know. And so many others have had to deal with what you are going through and know the trials and tribulations that you are experiencing. I'm truly sorry this has happened to you, but I'm glad you have found solace in the podcast, and I look forward to hearing your story when you are ready to share it. No hurry. Some of the stories like Kurt's, which Tracy referred to, are tough to hear and tough to read, I will admit. But sometimes the toughest ones are the ones that truly connect with people. I get not being one for the groups and not wanting to burden others with our problems. We all have our own ways of dealing with this whole experience. And if it gets you through, then it's probably the right choice for you. Thanks for the email, Tracy, and for letting me share it here. I love the feedback and hope to hear from you again soon. And that closes out our mailbag. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions and comments. Please keep them coming. And now... Onto our Benzo story. 
A story today is from Pam in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Pam writes the following email on her one-year anniversary, Benzo-free. Congratulations, Pam. That is such an amazing accomplishment and one to be celebrated for sure. I love all stories we receive and share. But these ones of success provide the hope that so many of us cling to during our difficult days. This story does include Pam's difficulties and fears, some of which might be hard to hear. But in the end, it is a story of success. Pam writes, Hi, Dee. I wanted to touch base with you to give you an update on me since my last email. Today is April 21st, 2020. Today, I've been benzo-free for one year. Today is my one-year anniversary. I'm doing so good. Yes, I still have days that my anxiety rears its ugly head, but the good days outweigh the bad. I'm so very grateful for your podcasts and now your YouTube channel. Throughout your podcasts, I was able to navigate through this last year with so much information and knowledge of what I would be facing. My, my story begins with a visit to a new primary care physician for the three-month refill of my Ativan. I was initially prescribed this drug to sleep by a psychiatrist nine years ago. At my appointment, my doctor asked me how long I had been taking this medication. I said, oh, about seven to eight years, I think. She looked stunned. She said, do you know that research has shown long-term use may lead to early-onset dementia or worse? I had no idea. I had taken it as prescribed, and I said, I want off now. She said, well, it's not that simple. We will have to wean you off. Wean me off? I couldn't begin to comprehend what that meant. So we began the process. Now, I'm not going to tell you this was easy. It wasn't. The first few weeks were filled with sleepless nights, shaking, and fear. The first few months were the hardest. I even had a surgical procedure in the early months of withdrawal, but did fine. I was hell-bent on getting this poison out of my body. I kept a calendar, and each day I marked through the date. That helped me so much. During this time, I had begun noticing that I would have weird body sensations, hands tingling, feet tingling. I decided to look for other people or someone to guide me through this process. That's when I found Benzo Free. I listened to each podcast carefully and took notes. I was so grateful to be able to listen to someone that had experienced what I was going through. Each week that passed was another week Benzo Free. I remember looking at the Ashton Manual and reading it, knowing that I would be okay. I checked in frequently with my doctor. I joined a yoga class, started jogging and doing anything physically to help rid my body of this drug. I also started therapy, which addressed issues that needed addressing. As hard as it got, each day was a new day. 
My precious husband stayed up with me during those sleepless nights, re reassuring me that I wasn't dying and that we would make it. I'm also a Christian, and prayer and meditation also brought me through some very difficult days. Today has been a beautiful reminder of how far I've come. I want to tell you all that it does get better. Dee told us that it does get better. My doctor said it does get better. You are not alone. I recently became aware of a dear friend of mine that has only been on this drug for a short time and is tapering off. I'm so glad I can help her. I'm so glad I'm benzo-free. I'll never take another benzodiazepine as long as I have a choice. I just didn't know. Thank you, Dee. Thank you for being there in the darkest hours, hearing your voice, knowing what I was going through. Thank you. I am benzo-free one year. With much gratitude, Pam. Okay, um... Thank you, Pam. Okay, full disclosure here, I teared up as I read Pam's story when I was writing the script, and I'm tearing up again as I'm reading it. Oh, it never ceases to surprise me how these stories still get to me every single time, and in such a beautiful way. The stories of suffering, the stories of success, it doesn't matter. They are all stories of life that we can all relate to. And they really get to me. You know, there, there are plenty of days when I worry about how I will keep benzo-free and now easing anxiety going. It's, it's a struggle. The amount of work, the finances, all the stuff that goes into it. But then I read stories like Pam's. And the tears fall. And nothing else matters. If this is all I do with my life... I've won. I have made a difference in another person's life. What is better than that? And now Pam, by sharing her story here, has done the same. And by helping out a friend, she has now made a significant difference in another person's life. Oh, Pam, your story, your words of encouragement will help others. I guarantee it. You have made a difference, and we thank you for that. Pam also mentioned about early-onset dementia being linked to benzos. Now, I realize that that comment may have triggered a few of you, and I wanted to respond to it. There is some evidence that long-term use of benzos may, and I want to emphasize may, increase the risk of dementia and or Alzheimer's in some patients. But the studies are far from conclusive, and this is far from a direct link. Please remember that the risk of early-onset dementia is already extremely low in the general public. And even though there is a possibility that benzos may increase that risk, the change may not be that significant, and the risk is still probably pretty low. But that is not the takeaway here. Pam's story is one of success and encouragement. She did so many things right. 
She became educated on benzos and found support in the community. She started therapy, joined a yoga class, started jogging, and found comfort in her faith to help her get through. She did the work, and I'm so proud of what she has accomplished. Way to go, Pam. You know, this past week has been a bit rough around here. A benzo friend of mine has had a very rough week. And going through that with her reminded me of how hard this really is for some people. The further we get away from this experience, the more we heal, the more normal life seeps in and we start feeling better again, the more we forget some of the worst days. And that's a good thing. But sometimes it's also good to have a reminder of where you've been. When one of you shares your struggles with me, especially when you're on the edge and thinking of giving up, is when all of this comes rushing back to me. And I just want nothing more than just to, you know, hold that person, tell her it's going to be okay, and that we're here to help her get through it. Okay, more tears. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, I guess it's an emotional day for me. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, I think I wandered a bit there, but I also think you get my point. I know this is a very trying time for so many of you, but we do get through it. Pam's story is a perfect example of that. Thank you, Pam. And we really do need stories. Pam's story got us through this episode, but now I think I'm about out. <laughs> so if you've been thinking about sending one in, now's a great time. Or if you sent one in a while ago and I haven't shared it on the podcast, please let me know. It may have gotten mixed up in my notes somewhere. That does happen now and then. <laughs> Just go to the feedback form at benzofree.org slash feedback or email me at podcast at benzofree.org. And now, without further ado, on to our feature. Our feature today is about surviving isolation. We're going to take a look at the state of isolation that so many of us are facing right now. Whether triggered by chronic fear from agoraphobia or other social anxieties, by the isolation brought on by benzo withdrawal, or by the general overall anxiety our world is facing now from this nasty virus. And we'll take a look at some tools that might help you manage during this time. So, let's dive right in. You know, we are social animals. We really are. A human infant will die without comfort and affection, even when given the essentials like food, water, warmth, and shelter. In prisons all around the world, the most common punishment for severe behavior is solitary confinement, also known as the hot box, the hole, egg said, lockdown, shoe, slot, pound, block, cooler. Yes, Google does come in handy when I research these features. But as you might have expected, solitary confinement is not without controversy, since its use can cause detrimental psychological effects, often compared to that of physical torture. In the conclusion of a 2018 review from the University of California, Santa Cruz, published in the Annual Review on Criminology, 
Author Craig Haney stated the following about solitary confinement in prisons. Quote, The harmful effects include a range of psychological and physical maladies. In recent years, new insights about the fundamental human need for meaningful social contact and for caring human touch provided important theoretical dimensions to an already existing and widespread appreciation of the adverse medical and psychological consequences of isolation and social exclusion. So, I think from that study and many others like it, it's quite apparent that social isolation, especially extended social isolation, can lead to physical and psychological harm and can even lead to death. You know, in hunter and gatherer times of human evolution, one of the most severe of all punishments was banishment from the tribe. Whether we like to admit it or not, we need social interaction. It is a human need, just like food, water, and shelter. Now, some of us may desire more of it than others, but in the end, we all need some of it. You know, let's take a brief look at a couple movies. Do you remember the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? Maybe it's before your time, but if not, in this movie, he is stranded on a deserted island and has to learn to live alone for a very long time. He even paints a face on a volleyball and calls him Wilson, just to have any semblance of human companionship. But there's another movie, an even more recent movie, that I think is even a better metaphor, and that is the movie Passengers. Now, I must provide a spoiler alert here. If you haven't seen the movie and want to, you might want to skip the next few minutes of the podcast. Just want to let you know you've been warned. <laughs> now, for those of you who haven't seen it, let me catch you up real quick. The year is 2343 and the spaceship Avalon is on its way to a distant star system, 60 light years away. 5,000 colonists and 258 crew are on board and in hibernation to survive the 100-plus-year journey, and to not be awakened until they are very near to their destination. Now, 30 years into the journey, an asteroid collides with the ship, causing a malfunction in the computer, thus awaking one person, and only one, played by Chris Pratt. There is no way for him to return to hibernation, and yet there is still 90 years remaining of his journey. And all that time, he will be alone. Now, this is a modern retelling of the classic deserted island tale, with a few exceptions. Pratt does have all the basic necessities he needs for life, so, so he doesn't have to worry about food and shelter. He also has his own version of Wilson, a robot bartender played by Michael Sheen. And one more quite important difference. He is surrounded by over 5,000 people who can be wakened if he so chooses, but who will be condemned to the same fate which he now faces, to die on this ship with only he as a companion and never reach their destination. So, thus, the dilemma and the crux of the whole movie. Now, here's the real spoiler part, so cover your ears if you don't want to hear this. 
Pratt's character wakes a fellow passenger played by Jennifer Lawrence. He doesn't tell her he is the one who woke her. But he is finally no longer alone. Now later in the movie, a chief deck officer, played by Lawrence Fishburne, is also awakened. And when Lawrence's character learns of what Pratt did to her, she says it's murder. But Fishburne replied with something I thought was quite interesting. He said, But the drowning man will always try and drag somebody down with him. It ain't right. But the man's drowning. Now, I'm not about to dive into the moral implications of Pratt's dilemma, but it is a perfect metaphor to help me make my point here. Pratt was sentenced to solitary confinement for life. He would never talk to another living human being again. A sentence that was to some degree worse than death. Now, I shared with you the story of the movie Passengers today because there is some similarity here to Benzo withdrawal. First off, this event happened to Pratt's character. He didn't do anything to cause it or deserve it, much like so many of us in Benzo withdrawal. And second, we too are often surrounded by thousands of people out there, you know, outside the walls of our homes. But we so often can't talk to any of them. Perhaps the movie is not a perfect metaphor, maybe not even a good one, but I thought of both of those movies as I wrote my script today, and I thought it might be good to include them just to try to emphasize our insatiable need for human contact. Whether you notice it or not, it's there. And when we don't have it, we suffer. In Benzo withdrawal, isolation is so very common. In fact, I'd even list it as one of the top five symptoms itself. I have corresponded with so many of you out there who have said how isolated, how alone you feel during this process. Some of you have even written to me and said that I am the only person you can talk to about this, and it breaks my heart every time. This condition that we find ourselves in isolates us in so many ways. We are often in pain, and thus we don't feel like seeing or talking to other people. We can have severe agoraphobia or other social phobias, which also keeps us away from others. We have a condition, this withdrawal, that is all-encompassing in our lives. But so often, others don't believe you, or at best, won't ever truly understand, as I mentioned earlier. And, and we can't help but want to talk about it. But others may not want to hear it. At least not for the 48th time. <laughs> I mean, I have no clue the number of times that I started out my morning conversation with my wife talking about my symptoms. What are the new ones today? How are the old ones doing today? What do I think might be causing them today? <laughs> and even how long do I think they might last? Why she is still with me, <laughs> I don't know, but I am grateful every day that she is. And now, with the coronavirus, this COVID-19 thing, the rest of the world is starting to understand, at least to some small part, what our isolation has been like. It's not the same, but it's a taste of it. And I'm amazed at how many people are asking me how they can cope 
Now, I've mentioned this before, but it appears that those of us who have survived this benzo thing and started to heal on the other side, we are now somewhat the experts. (laughs) We are now the ones who have been through this and are now equipped perhaps more than anyone else to help those around us to find peace amidst this newfound isolation. And for those of you who are in the early or mid-stages of benzo withdrawal with extreme sensitivities to anxiety, fear, and physical symptomology right now, I am truly sorry. This is indeed a perfect storm for you. And I can't imagine what the combination of these two events is like. Now, we all know that isolation is a part of benzo withdrawal. It's a part of social phobias. It's a part of COVID-19. But that leaves us just one question. What can we do about it? How do we manage it? You know, one of the double-edged swords in modern society is that of digital media, the internet. It solves a lot of our problems, and it also causes a lot of others. Like any tool or invention, it's all in how we use it. Now, with the onset of this recent pandemic, the good of the internet has truly come into light. It's allowed us to have some semblance of social interaction when we are unable to connect face-to-face. It's also allowed teachers to continue teaching children at home. It's allowed many workers to continue working at home. It's allowed us to communicate and update family, friends, and colleagues. It's even allowed me to research, publish videos and podcasts, and communicate one-on-one with many of you. The internet has been a godsend during this difficult time, and I know things would be much harder without it. This is a tool, and there's no better time than now to make use of it. Use it to communicate with others. Use it to help keep the depression demons at bay. But as I said up front, digital media is a tool, and it's all in how you use it. And this tool does have its downside too. Once the pandemic lifts, Once we can get back out there safely and communicate one-on-one with each other, we need to do so as best we can. Virtual communication is not a substitute for in-person interactions. And we can't let this change become our new normal entirely. We were already well on that trend, and it's only going to be amplified by recent events. As with any tool, we need a balance. Okay, enough of digital media. Let's talk about other tools. With Benza withdrawal on top of our stay-at-home orders, we need tools to help us manage our isolation more than ever. There, there are many factors that come into play when dealing with isolation. FOMO, or fear of missing out, is a big one. But actually, that is one of the rare benefits of the pandemic. We're not missing out on much right now since everyone is pretty much staying at home. (laughs) But back when it was just our benzo withdrawal and not COVID, this was a serious issue for many. Many of you have shared with me that you felt that this benzo experience has stripped from you quality time with friends, with loved ones, with colleagues, and that you have missed out on months, even years of your life. But 
you know, one thing to remember when it comes to FOMO is that most of it is an illusion. How often have you felt the insatiable urge to attend a party, which you weren't initially invited to, only at the last minute you did get invited, and you attended? Yet, while you were there, you slowly realized that you weren't missing that much. One of the key flaws of humanity is that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. We want what we can't have, and we often think what we can't have is far better than it truly is. The truth of FOMO is this. We're rarely missing out on anything all that grand. Another aspect of isolation is boredom. This is a big one, but it's also one with a variety of solutions. When we are alone, our outlets for entertainment are somewhat limited. There's TV, movies, books, internet, etc. But anything that takes more than one person may not be available to us. Unless, of course, we connect with somebody online. And that's exactly what my wife and I have done a few times. We have played games via FaceTime with a few of our single friends during this time of stay at home. It's not quite the same, but it's still entertaining. And even though we have each other, our single friends are alone during this difficult time and are going a bit stir-crazy. And together we found some companionship by having these virtual parties. But one of the most obvious options when you are bored and isolated is that of bettering yourself. Have you ever wanted to learn a language? Hey, this is the perfect time, and it can be quite easy. I have the Duolingo app on my phone, and I've been brushing up on my French now and then when I have time. Another thing you can do is home projects. Is there a better time to do that spring cleaning of the garage if you have a garage? Or if you're in an apartment, how about cleaning your apartment? Or build that shoe rack you've been wanting for the closet. Fix that leaky faucet. Knit a sweater. Or if you don't know how to do those things, learn. Shanna and I decided to stain our pergola earlier this week. Now, I say we agreed. Actually, it was more like Shanna decided to do it, and I begrudgingly came along and helped out, to be honest. <laughs> it's not my favorite thing in the world to do, but we did it. It took a few days, but we got it done, and it looks great. And it's another item off the checklist, and it feels good to have that accomplishment. Or perhaps you've been wanting to read the Bible from start to finish, or the Torah, or the Quran, or the Tao Te Ching, or whatever or understand quantum physics better, or the universe, or supernovas, or business marketing, or organic farming, or anything that strikes your interest. That's what YouTube is for. That's what books are for. That's what the library is for. Yes, I know the library is closed for many of us, but there's still Amazon and other online retailers. Or even better, I have the Libby app on my phone. And through my local library, I can check out tons of books both in text and audiobooks, and read them for free. The choices of entertainment and education are endless these days. You just have to decide what you want to do, or learn, or fix, or build. I published a video on our Easing Anxiety channel earlier this week about the seven tiers of anxiety management. It was about coping skills that 
many of us use to try and survive this thing we call anxiety. The fourth tier on that list was anxiety tools. You know many of those. And the seventh tier was acceptance, which you also probably know. But what a better time to work on anxiety tools and work towards finding acceptance than now. Perhaps take up meditation. Try some breathing exercises. Take up yoga, tai chi. There are videos for all those things online. Get some exercise. Start journaling. Take a walk in nature if that is available to you. Have you thought about adopting a dog, a cat, a bird, a lizard? What better time to do that than now? You need the company. They need a home. It's a win-win in my book. Do something. Because the alternative is to do nothing. And that often leads to rumination. And we know how that works out for us in the long run. If you are staying at home with others and you are getting on each other's nerves, which I'm sure we all do during this time, try and step back and remember how lucky you are to have someone to share this time with. Whether it's a spouse, lover, child, parent, or friend, it's good to have someone. Trust me. Because I know some of you don't. And you are truly alone during this isolating time. And on top of all that, you are also dealing with benzo withdrawal. I am so sorry. This is the perfect storm, and I won't trivialize it and try to pretend it is not extremely difficult. I don't have the answers for you, but I do know that this situation is temporary. All of this is temporary. The virus, benzo withdrawal, your depression, isolation, it is temporary and we will get through it. We just got to take it one day at a time. Find a reason to get up each morning. Shower, dress, put on some decent clothes. I know laying around in your pajamas all day sounds tempting, but it is not a solution for good mental health. You know, the real answer here, as it often comes down to in most of our discussions, is that of perspective. Life throws an array of challenges at us. The virus is one, benzo withdrawal is another. And the real question we have to answer is what do we do with those challenges? Do we see them as a problem, something evil, something someone did to us, something we have no power over? something that is bad throughout and there's nothing we can do about it? Or do we see it as an opportunity to learn about how to deal with challenging situations, to learn some new tools, to learn some new skills, to learn how to communicate better, how to love better, how to laugh better, how to live better? Yes, before I even say it, I know this all sounds quite simplistic, and you are right. Benza withdrawal and this virus are hard, incredibly hard and difficult challenges to overcome. And I sympathize with your plight. I've been there. Trust me, I do understand. In fact, I failed at all those things time and time again and still do. And it sucks. It is not fair that this happened to you. It's not fair it happened to me either, but it happened and we have to deal with it. 
Ben's withdrawal was going to be a bad time regardless. And if you're alone, it makes it even harder. You can't do a lot to speed up your healing. You can't do a lot to make it go away. But you can do one simple thing to make it a little bit better. You can try and make the most of it. You can try, and now and then, to see the opportunity hidden within. And that wraps up our feature. Please let me know what you thought about our topic today. I'm really curious to get your feedback, as always. You know, you can use our feedback form at benzofree.org feedback or email me at podcast at benzofree.org. And before we move on to our moment of peace, let's take just about 30 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit before you return to the chaos of the real world. Please remember that you should only do this if you are in a safe place where you can close your eyes, relax, and let the world pass by without you for a minute. Today we are going to do a short grounding meditation. Grounding is a technique for recentering yourself. In today's practice, we will ground ourselves to Mother Earth, to the ground beneath you, so you can feel connected, safe, and secure. The Earth is always there, providing a foundation for everything you do. You can rely on it. You can depend on it. You can trust it. This meditation can be performed anywhere, but the ideal position is the standard seated position in a quiet place, straight back, and your knees slightly lower than your hips. You can use a pillow for that if it helps. As you begin our meditation, you will feel your body become heavier, grounding down through your spine, through your pelvis, and into the ground below. If your mind wanders, just bring it back to the sensation of being supported by the earth. Let's get started. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. And let it out slowly. Let's do that again. Take a deep breath in. 
hold it for a second. And let it out slowly along with all the stress of the day. One more time. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. And let it out slowly, relaxing your entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally. And focus your attention on your connection to the ground beneath you. If your mind wanders, which it will, just gently bring it back to this connection. No judgment at all. Next episode is episode 65, and it will be released May 15th. Thank you again for joining me today, and please, let us know how we did. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.